0: Welcome to That Shit Show, a podcast about overcoming trauma. I'm Emma Castle. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show, Anne Marie. Uh, Anne Marie is a really accomplished communications person who has done lots of marketing and PR work in um, uh, in the tourism industry, but also lots of other industries. So, welcome, Anne Marie. How's it going?
1: Yeah, great. Thank you very much, Emma. Nice to be joining you today. Oh, well, thank you. Um, like, so on a like a less,
0: less chirpy topic, because marketing is usually about positive, positive, positive. Um, and obviously we're not in a very positive phase in the world at the moment, but going back, I think it's about 20 years. You mentioned to me that your brother passed away. So can you tell me a little bit about what happened?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I have three older brothers. Uh, Graham was the middle of the three older brothers. Um, and he, uh, was epileptic. So he was, uh, diagnosed when he was a teenager. Um, after having sort of a couple of, um, major fits, uh, one after the other, and it it actually came from, uh, something that happened when he was a baby. Um, he had a febrile convulsion and that, that, did some damage on his brain and it sort of develops later in life into epilepsy. And he, um, he really tried to kind of live his life and do everything that he could because he was often told he couldn't do stuff um, because of the epilepsy. And one of the things that he absolutely loved and was obsessed with was cars and driving. And as you can imagine um, for an epileptic, that's not something that they recommend. Um, And he was, on various different tablets to kind of keep it under control. Um, and when he was 26, he was on a particularly strong tablet, it was working really well. And so um, his uh, neurologist and our family doctor had agreed to let him travel to the train station, which was, I would say, around 200 meters away from our house. Anyway, one morning um, we woke up and our neighbour was knocking on the door and she'd said that Graeme had, had a car accident. And so we were in a group of cul-de-sacs and she used to go for a walk every morning and see him leave um, and drive down this main road that our cul-de-sacs came off. um, And she saw his car had hit a telegraph pole. And so we, my brothers, other brothers, we, we all happened to be living at home in that stage. I was only... 20. Um, and my older brothers had moved out of home, but had moved back, um, at that stage. And so they all, they got up and ran towards where the car was. Um, and my mum and I kind of got ready and and went down. Um, and basically he had started to have a fit as he got into his car and which meant he didn't put his seatbelt on. And he used to have a fit where, He would twitch slightly, but his whole body would stiffen up and he'd move to one side. And so, what the police um, and the doctors think might have happened is that he essentially had a fit, had one of those fits as he turned. As he was driving, and he was quite—he's quite lucid. He couldn't answer you when he had those sort of fits, but it would last for a minute, maybe. Um, he could still kind of function slightly, so he could still walk. But they think what might have happened is started to go into one, and then um, he had—he basically pulled the, the movement of—I um, guess how he used to lean to the side pulled the car towards the telegraph pole and he hit the telegraph pole um, and pretty much passed away instantly. So thankfully it was um, a fairly, you know, minimal impact. But as you can imagine for our entire family, it was pretty uh, intense um, to have to go through something like that. At what is a relatively young age, I guess um, 19, 20 is a fairly impressionable age Um, and, you know, it's something that you kind of work through over time and clearly affects me sometimes (laughs) um and other times you get through it but I, I have to say um our family has been the most important thing for us and we're very lucky that we have a really really close family from uh, you know my brothers and my parents and I are incredibly close um and all our extended family now um are incredibly close so I come from a really large family. I have you know some insane amount of cousins but it's um one of the the best things to have to grow up with, but also to have that network that have basically holding you up and pushing you forward through times like that so yeah it's been a really um it's one of those things that uh over time, <laughs> excuse me, I do have a tickle in my throat, so apologies, And So it is one of those things that some days is easier than others, um, but you never forget them, obviously, no matter if you're close to them, you never forget someone who passes away.
0: Yeah. So I guess this you know just a really normal just an ordinary day you know like this is just an ordinary day You're, it's the morning this thing happens so then
1: what happens afterwards like what happens in your family to kind of deal with this? I, I think so my parents uh, um, have a quite a strong faith they're Catholic and they have a very strong faith and I probably wouldn't say my faith is is anywhere near as strong as theirs. I I still believe in God, but I I don't go to church on a Sunday or or practice in that way. Um, So a big thing for them was taking us all to church. And I have to say, even though I don't do it now, the process of going to church the morning after it happened and even like the days after, and slowly but surely, it kind of dwindled off and we didn't go as often but that actually helped in some way to believe that there was something more. And I know there are a lot of people that don't, don't necessarily believe, but for, for our family, that helped, that helped in, in um, understand, not so much understanding because you never truly understand that sort of thing, but um, in being able to come to terms with it and see how there was something else out there and that he gone to a better place he wasn't sort of struggling with you know needing to want to do so many things but not be allowed to and and almost to some extent he did put his life on hold you know he didn't have any really huge relationships because he didn't want to burden anyone with the fact that he had epilepsy and and he had really great friends that were supporting him all the time um but he never really had that side of his life because he was really concerned about burdening people with him having epilepsy Um, and it's funny now you know 20 years on when you look at the fact that it's spoken about so frequently now and it has its own kind of day and it's got purple day and things like that that do raise awareness for for it that it's it is a it's a, a disease that lots of people live with so you know knowing that now also helps I guess in terms of how we can um you know, raise awareness as well in terms of making sure that people recognize it is something that people live with. It doesn't, in a lot of cases, Graham was really lucky. He was a really successful accountant. He led a great life. He got to do things, you know, he got to travel and do things that he enjoyed, um, for the most part. Uh, and so it didn't Im- impact his life in an, on an everyday level but obviously it ended up impacting it more significantly uh, and, and I think beyond um, the faith part is also um, the family and friends part for us was a big thing so it was being able to connect with family and friends um, and to continue to keep that network uh, around us to kind of keep you know bringing a sense of normality back into your life because it literally stops I mean the the I can recall every moment of the day it happened. The day after is complete blank for me. I don't, I am, and having a conversation with my brothers, it's the opposite. The day it happened, they don't remember. Um, but the day after they remember vividly. And so I think it's, you know, mentally processing all of those things as well is uh, is a, difficult thing, but what I would pay massive credit to my parents was that they never let us not talk about him. In fact, probably we talked about him more, um, you know, he's spoken about regularly and still to this day and all of our nieces and nephews and partners who came after the fact um, all know him, you know, in some way.
0: So he sort of his memory is very much alive in in your family and probably in your home and in the homes of all your family. So in those days afterwards, like you said, that faith and also family and friends. But sort of what happens once the immediate impact has passed? You know, when the crisis has sort of passed, and you know you're six months or a year down the track, and how are you feeling at that point?
1: Um, I probably say the milestones are probably the hardest. So when you have your first birthday or, you know, you go through, so the year after my eldest brother got married and that was a tough day for everybody, an amazing day, but it's still a tough day to know one, he's not there one, he'll never get married, you know, all those things that you think. Mm. Um, so they're tough to get through, but I guess, um, as I said, I think we're quite an open Family, So we talk a lot. We talk, you know, uh, every day or at least a couple of times a week amongst ourselves. Um, so the ability to talk amongst ourselves was a big thing. Um, and to recognize and to recognize and be honest with how we're all feeling, like whether it was my mum or my dad or, um, you know, me or my other brothers to be able to show how we're all feeling was really important.
0: Yeah. Did anyone act out? Cause often after something like where there's a tragedy, sometimes there's a little bit of acting out. Did anyone in the family act out at all? Or did everyone, because you yeah. had that kind of support there sort of,
1: no one went too off the rails? No, I don't think so. Like I don't, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, like I so I had an eating disorder before it happened. Um and it probably got a little bit worse, but it didn't get a little bit worse and, until probably 4 years later when I and I guess I don't know if it was related or it just was a case of you know time. Um but beyond that no. I, I think we were lucky in the sense that um yeah, we still kept a very close network um, mm-hmm. amongst ourselves, and we still kept very close. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like um, we were separate in how we were feeling. We were all really open about how we were feeling. Mm. So going
0: back to the eating disorder thing, like, so when did that start? Like, and how
1: how did that start?
0: Um,
1: I, I get. I don't really know how it started. I guess I um, was always a fairly big kid growing up. I loved food. I mean, I love food now, um, but I, I really loved food when I was a kid and I didn't do a lot um, of exercise. And, and my body type was that it meant I didn't have a fast metabolism, essentially. Um, and so I put on quite a bit of weight and I came back from a trip to the U S with my um, parents. And I was, I had put on quite a bit of weight. Um, And I I think one of those things that you kind of still remember, I had, I was going for a walk around the streets and some little kid, it was probably a year older than me at the time, but I look back now and consider him a little kid made some comment about me being fat. And, and then it was a couple of other comments that happened. And so I just started dieting or exercising and, and, you know, it started it innocently mm. um, and then I lost um, quite a bit of weight uh, and then I put it back on again. But then the next time I did it, I actually kind of went – quite significantly into to losing the weight and very restrictive with my eating and very restrictive with my schedules and, and very restrictive with my exercise and when I exercised and when I did certain stuff. Mm. Um, and it kind of progressed over time and it would be okay for a period of time and then it would get worse. And I had seen probably, I'd seen a few dietitians, I'd seen different doctors, I'd seen psychologists and psychiatrists. And none of them, for me, I I think at that point in time, I wasn't ready to admit that there was an issue. And even now I look back at photos of that time and I, can, I, I look at them and go, wow, yeah, I was really skinny, um, ridiculously skinny. But at the time I didn't see that. So I think it started in a way that was relatively innocent and then, you know, be it a stress from work or something like that, my ability to control what i ate and how i exercised and my schedule was where i found my i guess comfort zone to some extent which sounds ridiculous but it was the it was my control
0: Hmm. And so I guess, when did you realize, cause it sounds like you actually did go and see a lot of professionals and, and like, it's, you still felt like this is, this is okay. Like I'm not doing anything out of the ordinary. So at what point did you, did the penny drop that you thought, Hmm, maybe this is not so healthy or maybe I've gone too far. Like, was there a point at which you thought, Oh, <laughs> this has yeah, become a real know- addiction.
1: Yeah, it was probably a couple. So um, so I was uh, sick during school, but there were two or three other girls who were really sick. And so I always used to look at them and think I'm not that sick and therefore okay. I mustn't have an issue. So it yeah. mustn't be a problem. Even though teachers would talk to my parents and the principal would talk to my parents and say, look, we're really worried about it, we need to do something. I I never saw that as an issue. And so the doctors were probably more to appease my parents at the time and being a teenager and just kind of went along with it and went and saw them and and then eventually said, no, I don't want to go back. And then I'd probably say I went overseas and I came back um, and I weighed, I think I weighed like 45 kilos and I was six uh, five foot eleven and I was back at work and my bosses were concerned and actually pulled me aside and said, Look, we're really worried about you. And that kind of sprung something in me. And then I'd had a couple of nights out with friends where uh because I hadn't eaten and because I had drunk alcohol, I got really sick. Um and I either had to have my parents come and pick me up from the middle of the city or you know, was just sick in general and had friends take me home that I just went, Something's got to, something has to change. And then a family friend who was actually studying psychology had been doing an internship with a psychologist who I eventually saw. And I saw him initially every week for a period of about six months and then after that it sort of just dropped off.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so was it sort of like, what did they do? Like, was it like cognitive behavior therapy? Was it sort of working on yourself? Cause it's, I guess it's that kind of body dysmorphia thing where you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm still fat. <laughs> like yeah, a, yeah. pretty much, like um, I don't know. I guess what, what was it? Like
1: what, what sort of it steps was, did you take? It was, yeah. It was a bit of, um, it was definitely cognitive behavioural therapy, um, but in a way that so I had seen a psychologist who had done it, but she sort of gave me worksheets that I had to fill in and and different things, and it didn't help. I don't think. Whereas this mm. um, particular doctor, I, I shouldn't say didn't help. It just wasn't working for me, um, yeah. and so I think this particular doctor he he just used to we used to talk. Mm. and sometimes he'd write things down yes he'd record our session so he'd remember what Mm. we'd spoken about um but we used to just talk and he would ask me what had happened in that week was there anything that I felt was a trigger or Mm. or had stressed me out or because that used to be my that used to be my control when I was stressed out so um I would you know go and do a really intense session at the gym or I'd go exercise a lot or or eat, you know, eat nothing for a day or, you know, (sighs) stuff like that used to be my trigger. And so he he used to um, just, we'd just have conversations and a lot, and he said it will be based on on the cognitive behavioural therapy, but it was how Mm. he would frame up the questions and, and how we would have the conversation that would, I guess, help guide the therapy.
0: Mm. And so now you're a mom, got two beautiful kids, and but that whole process of being pregnant and having all those changes in your body and like being kind of out of control in terms of like the birth and was that really hard or like are you uh, so far beyond this now that it's kind of like that's not, you know, it was more your kind of average response to this because we're all freaked out by it, let's face it. <laughs>
1: yeah, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> yes or no. No, I would say, uh, definitely difficult. Um, I think with Amelia, I was lucky to the in the sense that I was working my butt off right up until I had her. Um, so Mm -hmm. I had gone for three weeks of maternity leave, but actually had her a week after I finished work. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and my last kind of period of time was really busy. And so, in some senses I was lucky because I didn't have time to think about it. Yeah. Um, And I didn't have time to think about the change and to the point that the week after I finished, it was around Christmas, it was November, so there were lots of Christmas parties and Steve, my husband was at a Christmas party and I picked him up and I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was on the other side of the bridge and he said, you okay? And I just burst into tears and basically cried for the 60 minute trip home about the fact that I was having a baby the follow, you know, within the next couple of weeks. And I didn't know what was I going to do. I didn't know how to handle it, how, Where what was going to happen. And so I think in some ways me working was a helpful thing for me because it gave me structure and it gave me focus and it allowed me to not think because I do uh-huh. even you know, I don't think I have still eating disorder thoughts, but you still think, you're still a thinker, you're a deep thinker and I am that about everything. So I'll often stew on a lot of things and it will kind of stay within me and I won't show any emotion about things, but it will stay within me for a long period of time and and poor Steve probably bears the brunt of it a lot of the time. Mm. Um, So I think for me, the changes to my body were pretty full on, but weirdly, I guess, for someone who had had a eating disorder, uh, the fact that it was a baby causing it was yeah. okay because I always wanted one. So, um, and that was probably one of, I remember when my nephew was first born, that was probably part of, it didn't sort of flip overnight, but part of my catalyst to realize that if I continued down the path that I was on, I may never have kids ah. um, because of the, the body uh, damage that I was doing. And even to the point of, you know, until we fell pregnant, I didn't know, even though I'd seen doctors to make sure everything was okay, I didn't know yeah. if it was going to be able to happen because of the damage that I'd done, you know, when I was a teenager. So Yeah, I don't think it really, um, I don't think it really affected me in that way. I'd probably say that just the the ability to overthink everything has stayed with me for a lifetime, (laughs) as opposed to being able to have any therapy to get rid of that.
0: Yeah. So now, like, you know, it sounds like you've sort of managed to get through two really major things. Like, so an eating disorder sort of was kind of a long-term thing, but I mean, your brother's death is a long-term thing too, let's face it. Like, it doesn't go away. So now even as someone who's a deep thinker and an overthinker like do you have strategies in place to kind of when you feel like oh I'm I'm not in a good place like or like I'm feeling triggered about my brother or I'm feeling triggered about you know just stressed and like any old thoughts about like oh, I just want to go exercise or whatever like do you have coping mechanisms now that you've sort of put in place as
1: a safeguard against you know Yeah, I think I'm, um, still a talker, so I like to, um, talk, but I tend to only really, uh, talk to kind of people that are close to me. So I'll talk to my husband a lot about things, um, particularly stuff that I might be stressed about. And he's very good at calming me down. Um, and then uh, I guess for me, exercise is really important. So it's funny I had a conversation with my doctor last week because since having Harry, the youngest, he's um, he's ten months now, and I find throughout any given month I can get really emotional and moody. Now I know every everyone can, but I said you know like I burst into tears about nothing, and it's happy tears, but or not not necessarily happy tears, but it's not I'm emotional or sad. It's just. I'm emotional. And so I said, how do I stop that from happening? Is there a hormonal imbalance or something medically wrong? And she said, there's not anything medically wrong. It's just probably you need to take some more time for you. And you know, do you like exercise? And I said, look, I haven't exercised properly in about four years, but I loved it. That used to be my kind of thing. And whether it was a walk or it was going to see a trainer, that used to be the thing that helped kind of sent to me and give me the endorphins so Mm. I have said that I need to start back into that world to kind of just help keep you know keep any anxieties or anything at bay but also help clear the mind yeah 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 yeah
0: that's interesting how sometimes even this thing that you might have overdone at some point it's still you it kind of started because you found you liked it like you enjoyed it and and same with food like it's you sort of love food and then you kind of it kind of got out of control a little bit at one point. Like, I mean, I know all about that. And um, it's just like, it's just kind of, I guess, keeping the boundaries around it, I suppose. So it's like, like healthy eating, healthy exercise versus like overeating over exercising. Um, okay. So it sounds like you're in a good place. So, with regards to your brother's death now, is there anything that your family does to commemorate him in a sort of formal way or do you go to the cemetery or like is he, was he cremated or um, how, do he, how is he sort of kept alive in your family?
1: Um, so we, uh, my parents go to the cemetery often. Um, mm-hmm. So we, he, they will go for his birthday as well as his um, anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, my grandparents are buried at the same cemetery, so they go for them as well and therefore they'll go and see his grave and, and visit it. Um, I haven't been back since probably a year after it happened and mostly because I, I kind of felt like I didn't need to to kind of feel like he was with me. And so, yeah, I, I haven't been back and I don't actually think my brothers have been back either. We... We kind of recognize it and talk to each other. I mean, we talk to each other a lot, but uh, we kind of call each other. We make a point of calling each other on the day of anniversary or and if we can, we'll get together in some way. So it might be that we just go out to my folks place and, and hang out with them for the day. There's no sort of mm. celebration or anything like that. We'll just be mm. there. Um, it was 20 years, two years ago and all of our cousin, we had a kind of a par- a party, I guess. We just hide out a space in a pub in Surrey Hills and got everyone together and had a drink to celebrate it, I guess, to celebrate him. So yeah, I think it's, you know, we don't, We don't not uh, recognise it, but we don't sort of make a big song and dance all the time about it. It's more just we all know he's sort of part of the family. We talk about him all the time. We joke about him and what he used to be like. He was a massive shit stirrer, so he's um, (laughs) often recognised or if, you know, you've lost something like keys or something, we'll always say, come on, Graham, find them for us. Oh, so you do talk to him? yeah. Do you ever talk to him when you're alone? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. And I, I, I think sometimes he's around. Like it's weird. I sort of probably felt it more in the early days, but then even still I sort of feel like sometimes he's around and, mm-hmm. and either with the kids or particularly more so now I've had kids. Mm-hmm. Before I had kids, it probably wasn't as present, but I feel it a bit more now. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> And so in terms of other people, if you like were to give advice to people and and on both counts, like, so with someone who's lost a sibling, but also someone who's experienced an eating disorder, like if people were to offer you support or advice or what would have been helpful? Like what, what were the things that people did that were good?
1: Um eating disorder one is a, is a hard one. I have to say, because I do have, uh, someone relatively close to me that's going through it or her child is going through it. And it, and it's hard to know how to provide advice, even though I've been through it. Um, and the other reason I say that is for me, certain things worked for, to get me to admit it, but it still Mm -hmm. took 10 years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, some people are, and it wasn't, Die straights all of that ten years, but it still took mm. ten years to get to that point. So, not that I don't think I can provide advice. I think for me, it is about recognizing the triggers and trying to provide a calm environment, mm. um, and also a bit of understanding. Uh, and it's and it's tough to understand if you're not going through it, um, mm. if you're not in the in the space of, you know, uh, really focusing on every morsel that you put in your mouth, it yeah. doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And so i probably say just try and give some understanding because often by creating the barrier of not understanding, it flips and makes it worse for the person and they might act out more
0: yeah. um, or you might,
1: you know, you might get stressed about it and therefore mm. do something that's related. So you might mm. go and exercise or not eat for a day or whatever the case might be. Mm. hmm um, and I think when it comes to losing someone, I think talking about it. I I know a lot of and I struggle even when I have friends who lose parents. There's not sort of or, or other family members. There's not words that make sense to say to someone when they're going through that. I think making sure that you're there and available if they need you and also being someone that is is open to listening and doesn't sort of say, oh, it'll be okay. Because sometimes you think it's never going to be okay. Um, So if someone was to turn around and say, it'll be okay, that's the worst thing they could say. (laughs) Whereas on another day, they could say that and you'd be like, yes, it will be. So I think it's also a level of understanding to know that you don't necessarily have to say something it is about saying that you're you're there if they need yeah. you, or or suggesting just to go out for a walk, or you know to get them out of the environment that may remind them of the person. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your
0: stories. It's you know like it takes a lot of courage to share these things. So thank you so much, and um, no hopefully, worries. hopefully, um, people will be able to get some ideas on what to do in these situations but also people who've been through similar things like they're like oh you know i relate to that too so thank you so much oh pleasure Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Take care. you've been listening to that shit show if you like what you've heard head to the facebook page or the website for more information it's that shit show You'll find show notes and more episodes to download.
1: Thanks so much for joining me.